you have your Bible or um, your bulletin, you'll find the text this morning. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Going to be looking at verses 16 through 34 this morning. We have been studying the book of Acts this fall. Martin covered Acts 14 last week during the Share Faith campaign series. Uh, we looked at Acts 15 and Acts 16, and that brings us this morning to Acts chapter 17. And in this passage and in this section, Paul has been preaching the Word of God to the Bereans. And if you look earlier in the chapter, in 17, the Bereans are receiving this with the Word with great eagerness. They're excited. But as always, when the Word is preached, we've seen this all the way through the book of Acts, some people get excited and some people absolutely hate it. And so there is a group that's not excited, and they run Paul out of town. And so the Bereans ship him off to Athens, where he is to wait for his uh, companions, his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. So he's in Athens. This doesn't appear to be planned, doesn't appear to be part of his missionary journeys, and he's waiting on his buddies. And so let's look and see what Paul does while he is waiting on Silas and Timothy. This is God's word in Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Preaching, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And he took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know that what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For, some, for, some, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from, er from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God uh, for his spirit to come and help us with this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this passage that is so instructive for us this morning as we live in a very similar culture, very similar time. And so I pray that you would take this passage and take the words off this page and apply them to each and every heart here this morning. Encourage us, challenge us, and show us that Jesus is better than all of the idols that we bow down to and adore. We ask these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Uh, our story obviously begins uh, with Paul in Athens, and everyone would have known about Athens. Athens was the intellectual, the art, the philosophical, and cultural center of the Roman Empire. Verse 17, we see that Paul does what he always does. He shows up at the synagogue, and he talks to devout persons. He talks to God-fearers. He talks to people who have some background in the Bible and who had some expectation of the Messiah. But that verse also tells us that Paul reasoned not only in the synagogues, but he also reasoned day by day, so it, it appears that he was there for some time. But he was in the marketplace. And when I hear marketplace, I tend to think about shopping. I tend to think about the place that we go to get our food. But this wasn't just a shopping district. Uh, this was the media center. They didn't have internet news back then or newspapers, and so you got your news from heralds that were coming in and telling you the news. It was also the financial center. It was Wall Street, the stock market. It was also the art center. Artists would go there to do their work and perform. And it was the intellectual and philosophical center as well. They had no journals and books circulating and so they worked it out in this place. They worked it out. It was the place where you went to talk about your ideas and to talk about your philosophy, very similar uh, uh, and comparable to the university today. And Paul goes to this very place where the culture is being produced. That's where Paul goes. And he goes right to the place where culture is being produced and he shows up and he brings them the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
verse 18. And while he's there, he interacts with a group of Stoics and Epicureans. Those were the two of the leading philosophies of the time. And I can't say everything, obviously, about those philosophies, but I do think it's important to say something because it, we'll see this as we go through the passage. It informs the way Paul talks about the gospel and Jesus with them. And so the Epicureans, they believed that um, the gods were completely remote. They were completely absent and distant from the world in life. And so their philosophy in life and the way they counseled people to live their life was, don't worry, be happy. Minimize pain, maximize pleasure and happiness and fulfillment. Do whatever makes you happy. Does that sound familiar? The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that God was in nature and had a fixed fate for everyone and for everything. And as a result, uh, their philosophy of life was not the pursuit of pleasure, but of duty. And so you've got these competing philosophies, and Paul's interacting with them, these philosophies that have totally different worldviews and ways of thinking about life, They're different, but they're unified, verse 18 says, about one thing. They think Paul is a babbling idiot. Why do they think he's foolish? Because he's a Christian. Because he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Does that sound familiar at all? Friends, I don't think there is a more relevant passage in the book of Acts for us in 2019 than Acts chapter 17. Because these two competing and rival philosophies that we see here are alive and well in our world today. The culture, minimize pain, maximize pleasure and fulfillment. Oh, and if you're a Christian then you're considered naive and uneducated, and if you don't believe, believe me, spend five minutes on the college campus. And over and over in the book of Acts, we see examples of the apostles, and we see it here with Paul, of the gospel going to different sorts of people. And so this morning, here's the main idea. I want us to look at this passage and see how Paul explains the gospel. You can use the word evangelize if you want. You can use the word missions if you want. You can use the word ministry if you want, how he ministers to them. But let's look at how Paul explains the gospel to a culture that's very similar to our own. And I hope as we look at this passage, it will help us connect to our own hearts, but it will also help us connect to the world around us and the neighbors and the places and our co-workers that are all around us. I pray this passage will help us connect to our culture and to our world. Two things this morning. Let's look at Paul's method and Paul's message. The method and the message. Let's look at the first point. Let's look at his method. Look at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, so he's waiting on Timothy and Silas in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. Two things to point out here that are a little harder to see. Commentators point out the fact that the adjective that Luke uses, full of idols, 
gets at the idea that the city, we could say it a few different ways, was under idols or smothered in idols or Athens was covered up in idolatry. It's also worth noting here that when Luke says Paul's spirit was provoked, that it's the same language that is used in the Old Testament to describe God's reaction to idolatry. In other words, you see, Paul sees the world the same way God sees the world. Paul is walking around Athens and he's not, look at the Parthenon. Or, wow, I can't believe that art. I can't believe how beautiful um, uh, this place is. No, he was provoked because of the idols were covering up the city. You see, like God, Paul sees Athens. And he sees that these idols are destroying the people that are worshiping them. And what I want you to, us to grab hold of is that he's provoked in his spirit, but look at how that leads him to engage with these people in this city. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, So Paul was standing in the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I've walked around your city, I've strolled. And I've seen the statues and I've seen the objects of your worship. A few observations as we think about ministry in our current culture. The first observation is this. Notice Paul is winsome. Now I'm not saying there's not a time for us to be indignant about things that are going on in the culture. But notice what Paul does. The city's covered up in idolatry. Paul doesn't walk around Athens and throw his hands up in hatred. He doesn't preach with condescension, telling them everything he hates about what they're doing and about their city. No, he's very civil. He's very respectful. And even, did you notice, complimentary. He makes a point of connection with them. He builds a bridge. Hey, I can see that in every way, you're religious people. I remember as a campus minister, uh, every spring as the weather turned, that also meant something else that was going to happen on campus. It meant that the traveling street preachers would show up to the center of campus They would pull out their sound system and get on their microphones and they would yell the most hateful, cruelest things to the students that were walking by. And again, they may have had good intentions. They probably did. And then they would put these signs around them and sometimes they would have people that would be holding the signs or they would be these A-frame signs And they would say things like, turn or burn. And it'd be full of flames. Or they would have a a sign that said, God hates. And then it has a long list, front and back, 
of all the people and all the things that God hates. And then here's the sign I'll never forget. Do you have AIDS yet? How many people you think stopped and listened? How many people you think were persuaded to keep listening? Listen, I I know that's extreme. Maybe for you, it's the experience of someone walking up to you when you're on your vacation at the beach and shoving Jesus down your throat. Or maybe coming to your door in the middle of dinner or walking up to you randomly and it's like a data information dump. They don't ask you any questions about you or about what's going on in your life, or about how you're doing. It's just as if they want to get through their presentation or their gospel track so that they can get on to the next person. And I don't know about you, but that leaves you feeling more like a project than a human being created in the image of God. As we think about our culture and ministry to our culture... Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't begin with turn or burn. He loves them. He walks around their city. He gets to know these people. He meets them where they are. Why? Because he wants them to keep listening. And so like the Apostle Paul, we need to find things in our culture that we can appreciate. Things in our culture that we can affirm. We can't affirm at all, but there are things that we can affirm. Or look for things in other people that we love and appreciate and work hard to love them. Secondly, Paul addresses them. The other observation here, as we think about what it looks like in our culture to take the gospel to people, the cult, he addresses the problem of the culture by talking about idolatry. Did you pick up on that? That's really the theme of the entire thing. The Bible says that you as a human being, Christian, non-Christian, human beings are built to be dependent upon something. You're built as a worshiper. The Bible says that all of us have this innate, inevitable capacity to lock ourselves onto something in order to make sense of ourselves and the world around us. From the moment of your birth, every single person is looking desperately to plug into something to make them feel alive, to give them meaning and hope and acceptance and love. Let me say it another way. Everybody's religious. Everybody is worshiping something. Now, it might not be the one true God, but they're worshiping. Because it's how you were made as a human being. I heard this recently. These things float around social media that seems like for the last couple of years. You've probably seen this or heard this as well. How to be a mom in 2019. I thought it was pretty funny, but very true. Make sure your children's academic, emotional... Psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed food-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, 
plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing but fostering of independence, gentle but not overly permissive, pesticide-free two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced exactly two years apart for proper development. Oh, and don't forget the coconut oil. How to be a mom in literally every generation before ours? Feed them sometimes. And then in parentheses, it says, this is why we're all crazy. Listen, the temptation is for us to look around the world and to look around the culture and to say, this is the most faithless culture that has ever existed on the face of the earth. No, 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 it is not. We have faith. We're worshiping. It might not be the one true God, but we are worshiping. We're worshiping our children. Worshiping success and money and achievement and beauty and work and fill in the blank with your idol of choice. That is what the Bible calls idolatry. And Paul says, I can see in every way, and he says to us this morning, I can see in every way that you're very religious. I can see your objects of worship. Do you see how Paul takes the gospel to Athens? To people who have no idea about the Bible? To have, that have no Bible background? You know what he does? He finds out what they're worshiping. He finds out what their idols are. He finds out where they have rebranded and put their faith. He finds out what they're looking to for meaning, purpose, and validation. And we must do the same as we seek to connect to our culture. What are the idols of our culture? And we enter in with the gospel there. Secondly, his message. Look at verse 23 and following. He establishes common ground again with them. He's building bridges. He says, you know, I was walking around your city and I noticed an an idol and an altar that had this inscription to an unknown God. And so the line of thinking is this, wait a minute, (laughs) this is Athens. You're the know-it-alls. You are supposed to know everything and yet you've got a God that you cannot name. And Paul sees the altar to the unknown God, and he sees it as the Athenians' acknowledgement of the limitations of their religion and the limitations of their gods. You see, the reason why they made such an altar, because they had this deep sense that they were missing something in their religion. And so Paul is saying, you know that God that you missed? That God that you don't know, that you have not been able to discover, well, I am here today to reveal him to you. Isn't that a, that's an amazing, a fascinating and brilliant approach. And then Paul goes on, look at verses 24 and following, and he distinguishes the one true God, his God, with their idols. Let's go through these. Verse 24. 
he looks and he says, God is the creator. He made the world and everything in it. Verse 25, God also is the giver of life. He gives life to all men and breath and everything else. Verse 26, God determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. And so he's saying, though God is powerful, God is not remote. He's behind everything that's happening in the world, in human history, and he's near and involved with his people. Verse 27, God did this so men would seek him and find him. The one true God, he's saying, is more powerful and more personal than anything that you are currently worshiping in Athens. And he created you. And he wants you to know him, and he wants you to find him, and he wants a relationship with you. Notice, Paul doesn't start with, God hates you. No, he starts by saying, this God that I'm talking about that you've missed, he's near. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants you to seek and find him. He wants you to know him. Then look at verse 28. How many times does Paul quote the Bible? It's not a trick question. He doesn't. I'm not saying we don't need to quote the Bible when we're interacting with people. But you know what Paul does quote? They're poets. He quotes for them. uh, They're poets. Friends, Paul didn't run from the culture. He didn't go in a hole and hide and abandon it. No, he was a student of the culture. Because it was the very thing that he was using in order to reach the people that needed Jesus. He used the culture to build a bridge. Do you see what Paul has done? I've read this passage lots of times over the course of my life. And it's even more amazing now than it was then. I mean, it is amazing what Paul does. Remember who he's talking to. Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans believed that God was absent from the world. The Stoics believed that God was in everything. You see what he does? To the Epicureans, he says, no, God is near. He's not absent. He's very personal. To the Stoics, he comes and says, God is powerful, more powerful than anything you can imagine, and he's not dependent upon you. And he's not dependent upon the world. And so Paul doesn't just pull out his canned gospel track and plow through it. He doesn't pull out a canned gospel presentation and says, let me get through all this and then we'll talk. No, he brings the gospel to where they are and shows them and undermines their worldview And shows them how Christianity can tell their story better than they can. And help them make sense of who they are in their life. He shows them that God is better than their idols. Because God is more powerful and more personal than their idols. And we need to hear that this morning as well. What would it look like today? Well, we could run all of our idols through this grid of personal and all-powerful. We can't do all of our idols, of course. We wouldn't have the time, but let me talk about work. God created work uh, as a good thing. 
as a thing for us to do and find enjoyment in. But work, like all our other idols, is not all-powerful. Work cannot rise above the world. And here's what I mean by that. It's not all-powerful. For example, you can't control the stock market. You can't control what the stock market does that might put you out of a job next week or in a year. You can't control what CEO is hired for your company that might come in and might dismiss you. You can't control um, technology. This is happening everywhere. You can't control the fact that in 10 years you might not be needed in your job and you might be out of work because technology has advanced so rapidly. We can't rise above work. It's not all-powerful. But neither is work personal, and you know that. Work can never love you back. Work is good at taking from you, but not very good at giving to you if it's your idol. Work will make you a slave. It cannot forgive you. It will always demand more and run you into the ground. Our idols, whatever that is for you this morning... They're neither powerful nor personal enough to hold the weight of our lives and give us what it is that we're really after. Verse 30, and we'll close. He's been building bridges, but the bridge building goes away pretty quickly here. And he appeals to them. Look at verse 30. Very strong. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice he doesn't say, hey, it's optional. If you want to repent, you can. If not, it's okay. No, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That man is Jesus, whom he has appointed, and he gives us the assurance because he was raised from the dead. Let me highlight one thing, the word repent here. What does the word repent mean? It means to turn from. What is Paul asking them to turn from? They're idols. If you turn from something, you must turn to something else. So what is he asking them to turn to? He's asking them to turn to Jesus. In other words, he's saying stop serving your idols and surrender your life to Jesus by faith. And in this marketplace with these philosophers, they most certainly would have heard this as, remember, they had all sorts of gods they were serving. It was, the town was smothered. The city was smothered in idols. They most certainly heard this as something like this. Oh, okay, Paul. Yeah, we got it. You, Jesus is an add-on. We, we've got all these other gods, and you're wanting us to add Jesus to the mix. Jesus uh, is an add-on, and so, uh, yeah, we can do that. You ever add Jesus to all your other list of gods that you serve? Jesus ever an add-on in your life? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying repent, which means leave your gods, leave your idols, And run to Jesus and worship him alone. And then the question is, why would we want to do that? Why would they want to do that? And you know what Paul's answer is to the philosophers there and to us this morning? Because Jesus is better than our idols. 
Jesus is better than the things that we bow down to and we fill our lives with every single day. How is Jesus better? Because he doesn't demand your life in order for you to be loved and made significant. He doesn't demand your life. Jesus actually offers himself to you because he loves you. And he comes into the world to live for you and die for you. And if you don't believe that that this morning, look no further than this table. This table is a picture that Jesus is a good Savior that doesn't demand you to sacrifice your life. Instead, he sacrifices his in your place. You see, in Jesus, we see the power and the presence of God come together. In Jesus, we see the power and the presence. It's not in an idea. It's not in a philosophy or a Greek God or an idol. But in Jesus Christ, he is the one you're looking for this morning. He's the missing piece and the one that you're after. That was Paul's message to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. And it must be our message to our culture as well. Only in Jesus Can God be known? Will you come to Jesus this morning? Will you trust him? He's near. He's here through his spirit. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. And so whether it be your first time, perhaps this morning, or the hundredth time, Will you turn from your idols? Will I turn from my idols? And will we go and run to Jesus? Friends, Jesus really is better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for drawing near. Thank you that you didn't ask us to work our way up to you, but you actually came down to us. Thank you for being personal. Would you give us the grace to repent? We can't even do that on our own. We can't muster that up. So would your spirit come and give us the grace of repentance from our idols and the things that we look to for life other than you. Help us to believe by faith that you really are better than anything that the world has to offer. In Jesus' name, amen.